You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Farad Zengana, Medical Director of the Endocrine Diabetes and Osteoporosis Clinic, EDOC, in Sterling, Virginia. Dr. Zangana also serves on the Board of Directors of the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists, AACE. I'm Dr. Farhad Zangana, your host. With me today is Kathleen Kiriwen, MD, and PhD from the Methodist Hospital Research Institute in Houston, where she coordinates their clinical research program in the Diabetes Research Center. Dr. Wynn is board certified in endocrinology, diabetes and metabolism, and in clinical lipidology. Her current research interests are related to the role of inflammation and lipid metabolism in the etiology of diabetes and hypertension. Dr. Wynn, welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. So my first question that I uh, wanted to ask you would be regarding classification and diagnosis of diabetes and mainly type 2. Is, uh, is anything different or are we still following the previous classifications? We talk about the classification of diabetes. What you hear on the news all the time is pe- people talking about diabetes and about prediabetes. And I thought it was important to talk about how we make the diagnosis not just because we've changed the criteria, but also we've changed our perception about how and when we should make the diagnosis. And this has been a change that's occurred over about the last 10 to 15 years. Prior to that, we used to do everything we could to avoid making the diagnosis. We'd tell people to go on a stringent diet for two weeks before they came in for testing. We would not want to call them diabetes until their sugar was well above 200, and even then only if they had symptoms related to the high sugar. But the change has been that we're really pushing people to get screened for diabetes, to make the diagnosis as early as we possibly can, and to make the diagnosis before they have those symptoms. And part of that's because we know that it's much easier to get it under control and keep it under control if we make the diagnosis early. But I also think the reason for the change is that we now have medications to treat diabetes that people can tolerate quite nicely. In the past, those medicines would make you hypoglycemic if you had such an early diagnosis of diabetes. So, for example, right now, uh, can you share with us what are the tools we have available, how many different directions we can come across diagnosis of diabetes? To make the diagnosis, we're supposed to have two separate tests, but they can now be done on the same day. One is the fasting glucose, and that would be a fasting glucose above 125. Another would be the hemoglobin A1C, and that would be a hemoglobin A1C of 6.5 or above. And then the other one is to do a glucose tolerance test where you check the sugar before and then two hours after drinking the glucose drink. And if that sugar is 200 or above, then you have diabetes. Now, there is one other way to make it, which is if you have a very high sugar and symptoms of diabetes. So if you happen to come in saying you don't feel good, you're losing weight, you're thirsty all the time, and your sugar is above 200, that alone does actually make the diagnosis. But since we're being so aggressive to test people, we're really now diagnosing most people either based on a fasting or an A1C. So we really should, and with all these great tools and so many different ways of making the diagnosis, there shouldn't really be a way that we should be missing this important diagnosis. That's true because we have so many tools, but the truth is the tools aren't perfect because the disease process is, is a very homogeneous process. 
So some people, they'll make the diagnostic criteria on their fasting. Some people will make it on their sugar at two hours after a meal. And some people will only make it on the A1C. So you really want to be using multiple tools so that you don't miss the people. In other words, if you only use one test, you're going to miss at least a third to a half of all the diabetes. So let's say today I was diagnosed with diabetes by one of these four criteria that you um, nicely outlined. Does this mean that yesterday I was perfectly good, or is there an, is there an incubation time? Is there a, a process? Can you share with us the, uh, the, the process of prediabetes conversion to over type 2? You know, what you've raised there is one of the biggest challenges we have in diabetes because we can identify who's at risk for diabetes, but we don't know when the person is going to progress to diabetes. We know that people who meet criteria for prediabetes, and that would be a fasting glucose of 100 to 125 or a two-hour glucose of 140 to 199, those people are going to progress at a rate of about 10 11% per year. But we don't know with absolute certainty who is going to progress in the next six months or the next 12 months. The A1C doesn't tell us who's going to progress. It just tells us whether or not you have diabetes today, but, but it doesn't tell us what's going to happen six months from now or next year. Can you tell us what are the criteria for prediabetes since we nicely outlined those four diabetes? So, so the criteria for prediabetes is primarily based on the sugar. So most people we diagnose with prediabetes, we, we do it based on that fasting sugar of 100 to 125. Now, you can still do that two-hour glucose tolerance test, which is going to be a level at two hours of 140 to 199. And the other option is still the A1C. But um, the A1C is not as good a test as using your glucoses. And again, you're going to miss a lot of people there. So we really have a nice natural history that probably is variable for different people. And what is your advice, for example, to the, uh, to the clinicians? And I know there is different guidelines and there is no unification. But if you have prediabetes, what is your faith? Well, if you have prediabetes, that's not a 100% guarantee you will progress to diabetes in your lifetime, but I always say if you live long enough, you will, but you have control over when, not the if part. You have control over whether you progress to diabetes as a teenager, in your teens, your 30s, your 40s, your 70s, and the key there is to, to stay healthy and to stay physically active. And it's very important that I'm using the word healthy. I'm not talking about any specific weight or BMI, but to be healthy. And physical activity helps to balance out your, your glucose in your body. So those are the two things you can do to control when you progress. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Farhad Zanganeh, and I'm speaking with Dr. Kitty Wen from the Methodist Hospital Research Institute in Houston, Texas. And we're discussing prediabetes, type 2 diabetes, and diagnosis classifications. So, um, Dr. Wen, um, there is a, a two, two schools of thought uh, out there. One, they believe that diabetes is a lipid disease. The other uh, group believe that diabetes is a, a sugar disease. A group believe that diabetes is a hepatic disease. And another group believe that diabetes is a pancreatic disease. Can you uh, give us your thoughts on these issues? So 
The problem with diabetes is that we diagnose it by the glucose level. And the glucose level is the result of a lot of metabolic changes in the body. So essentially, all these different schools of thought are correct, but the key is how do you integrate them all together? So you can be insulin resistant and not develop diabetes. That much is clear. But it's not a single gene disorder so that we could just test for that gene and predict who has diabetes. What we do know is that before you develop the elevated glucose, certain things typically happen in the body. And one is that you develop insulin resistance, which actually starts with the inflammation in the fat, but also spreads the inflammation to other organs in the body and is related to extra fat deposition in tissues such as the heart and the liver. So that contributes to the insulin resistance. And most commonly you see that insulin resistance in people who are overweight, obese, especially if they're not physically active. But even so, not all of those people develop diabetes, and that's where the pancreas comes in. And that's really where I think the genetic part of the disease is, because whatever the genetics are, your pancreas has to have an inability to maintain adequate insulin production for your body's needs. And so even within that, the problems that the pancreas has have different manifestations. As I said, some people have a high sugar in the morning, some people have a high sugar after meals, and that's what tells us that there's many different genes involved in this. So your number one predictor for diabetes is actually a family history of diabetes. And going back to the liver enzymes, because that's a very hot topic. So if you have abnormal liver enzymes, it could be due to many different uh, causes. But is metabolic syndrome a big uh, cause of the abnormal liver enzymes? Well, metabolic syndrome is a situation where you're going to very frequently see abnormal liver enzymes. And the key when you see abnormal liver enzymes is to do a good history and physical and try to figure out what's causing them. The thing we worry so much about is the different types of hepatitis. And then we worry about different drugs that can affect your liver. And then we come back to things that are not as easy to diagnose or treat, which is what we see in diabetes, which is a fatty liver. It's actually very important to identify those abnormal liver enzymes in diabetes and to evaluate them because we do have different ways to treat them depending on the cause. In fact, we have new treatments for hepatitis. But if it turns out that it's due to a fatty liver, we have several treatments for that. One is to aggressively manage the glucose. Two is to lose weight because that's been very clearly shown to decrease the amount of fat in the liver and prevent the risk associated with the liver disease. But then we also have data that some of our pharmacologic therapy can improve the liver enzymes. Now, why is it important to identify it and treat it? Well, it turns out the natural history of the fat accumulation in the liver is that over about 20 years, it will progress to cirrhosis. And that cirrhosis progresses to liver failure, needing either liver transplant or the person's going to die from the liver failure. If it doesn't progress to liver failure, then ultimately it progresses to hepatocellular carcinoma. And we actually have a worldwide epidemic of fatty liver and hepatocellular carcinoma that's slowly emerging over the 
the recent years and growing rapidly. So this is something important that we need to pay attention to. So this is actually very interesting. So you can, uh, it could be a sign of early diabetes or you progressing. And, of course, it can lead to uh, pretty bad uh, liver disease. That's, uh, that's quite interesting. Can you uh, chat with us a little bit on, uh, for example, if you see a patient with high triglycerides, what does that tell you? When I say high triglycerides, the two things I think of are, number one, is this possibly a primary hypertriglyceridemia, or number two, could this person be someone who has insulin resistance and possibly prediabetes or diabetes? And the treatments are very different because if it's a primary hypertriglyceridemia, I'm going to treat them simply with pharmacologic therapy. But if it's not and it's due to insulin resistance, then I need to look at things starting with weight loss, lifestyle changes, but also some of my pharmacologic therapy. More importantly, I'm going to ask the question, are they insulin resistant? Could they have a fatty liver? Could they have diabetes? And one of the markers we've learned there just from looking at the lipid profile is when you have an elevated triglyceride to HDL ratio at least above 3.5, probably above 3.0, then that person is insulin resistant. And that is someone that I absolutely want to look at them for fatty liver and I want to look at their glucose. And if that person with the elevated triglyceride to HDL ratio has a normal fasting glucose, I'm going to go ahead and do an A1C and do a glucose tolerance test because some of those people, especially if they have abnormal liver enzymes, will end up having a two-hour glucose that's not only above 200, it'll be 400, and those people will have diabetes, giving us a chance to make an early diagnosis just because we saw the high triglyceride to HDL ratio. Very interesting. And my last question, Dr. Wynn, uh, we are in the middle of diabetes epidemic. Uh, is this because uh, the epidemic is rising, or can you talk about the relative contribution of the changes in guidelines that we talked about earlier in the program, uh, lowering the threshold, and uh, does that have a role too, or it's, it's just simply a matter of the numbers and a major epidemic? I really don't think it's the additional criteria that's brought out the epidemic, because the truth is... The biggest change in the criteria was back in 1997 when they dropped the the threshold for the fasting glucose down to the 126. Adding the A1C to the criteria does not seem to have given us a significant increase in the prevalence of diabetes. And the truth is the epidemic, both in this country and worldwide, was really already established before the A1C was added to the criteria. So I think we need to look back at what's happening with our lifestyles and our nutrition to try to determine why we're having this epidemic. This epidemic is not limited to the United States. And in fact, actually, some of the countries in Asia and in the Middle East have twice the prevalence of diabetes in their adult population that we do. I think we need to look at lifestyle, look at how sedentary we are. Even a small amount of physical activity can make a difference, but also we need to look at our our day-to-day nutrition. Dr. Wen, I can talk to you all day. You're a wealth of uh, information, and we uh, truly were privileged to have you uh, on the program today. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. Hope to have you on the program again, and many thanks to my friend and our guest, Dr. Kitty Wen um, from Texas, and thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, 
visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download this segment, go to reachmd.com forward slash diabetes.